Welcome to Unpacking Ideas, the podcast where each episode we do our best to try to unpack some of the major themes and ideas in a piece of writing. This week we're taking a look at Walking by Henry David Thoreau. Thoreau was an American transcendentalist philosopher, a naturalist, and an abolitionist, among other things. And this piece, Walking, was originally a lecture that he gave in 1851 and later adapted into an essay. Today, helping me unpack this piece was my good friend and cousin, Stephen Aldridge. The two of us had what I thought was a very interesting conversation about the adventurer mindset, nature, mythology, beginner's mind, and all kinds of themes that uh, Thoreau gets into. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Stephen on walking. Cool, cool. So we're doing Walking by Thoreau, which is an essay that I believe was originally a lecture. Uh, He originally delivered this lecture, I think in 1951, I was reading, and then later kind of took bits and pieces from that and turned it into what it is today, this piece Walking. And I got to say, I when we first kind of discussed doing it, I was kind of like a little scared that there wasn't going to be enough meat on the bone. I was kind mm-hmm. of like, is this, is, are we really going to be able to, uh, you know, have a conversation about walking? Uh, but it definitely, he definitely, uh, packs a lot in here. He kind of yeah. uses walking as like a jumping off point. Yeah. It's definitely a bit, disorganized i think and kind of rambly but i think that that uh i actually well i didn't really like that so much but then at the same time i feel you know that is more of this in the spirit of the kinds of walks that he likes to pursue and he sort of like goes hither and yon and then eventually comes back to you know, tying in a few key words at the end that are the same at the beginning, you know, so. Yeah, I thought the same thing when I was reading it. There's a kind of like meta thing happening where in the piece he talks about, you know, uh, the adventurous spirit that a walker needs to have and that somebody who is walking should just kind of go where their feet take them and kind of wander and saunter around. And the meta thing is that this is, it, yeah, it's the kind of style of this piece is written in where he starts talking about walking and then that kind of leads him into talking about something else, which leads him to talk about something else. And yeah. eventually, yeah, he ends the piece talking about walking. So the piece itself is a bit like a walk around. Yeah. And would you say it is a good walk or or not so good? I, I mean, I enjoyed the walk. I kind of enjoyed where... Some of some of the places that he takes us. I mean, he takes us into talking about education, uh, like names, like names of people. A lot about nature. Um, yeah. A lot, some stuff about mythology. Uh, it was really cool. It kind of reminded me of some of Montaigne's essays, except mm-hmm. I feel like Montaigne will just kind of like take you out to left field and then just like leave you there and just be like, "Yeah, I'm done writing." <laughs> Whereas yeah. Thoreau like kind of out in this field tonight. <laughs> exactly. Whereas Thoreau at least kind of like brings you back home eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of, this is a sort of side thought about Thoreau that I was having. Um, not entirely. Someone will have to fact check me on this, but I wonder about, so he talks a lot about his style of walking that he will go 10 miles in a day or something every afternoon. Mm -hmm. He's not sure which direction he is going to go from at the start. He doesn't take roads. He just sort of wanders about and then he circles back Mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day. And I kind of, I kind of wonder if the spirit of adventure that he boasts of and celebrates is actually um, in the kind of walk that he takes. 
because I, it seems to me that there's like several kinds of walking. You know, one is where you just walk along the road and then you have a very set uh, destination. You go to from point A to point B and then you're back again. Right. Um, which he says, this is not really walking. Maybe this is walking for exercise or something. Right. And then he says, you know, true walking is a kind of sauntering about. You're not sure where you're going. But then he always loops back to home base. Mm. And I just wonder if that returning is actually sort of against the principles of sort of sauntering, voyaging that he is excited about, right? Because you'd think, yeah, true throwing caution to the wind would be just going out and then I'm not sure where I, I well, yeah, up. right. You're following wherever your feet kind of lead you. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I think that's a good question. Cause yeah, he is saying, you know, this, the way I kind of read this is that the spirit of walking to him is it's kind of a mindset. It's this mm-hmm. kind of open mindset the kind of adventurer mindset of like, I don't have any goal or destination. I'm not really like trying to get anywhere, or do anything. I'm just kind of following my feet, going to into the world and kind of being led by, you know, my instinct or soul or intuition, kind of whatever we want to fill in that blank. But yeah, he, you know, you're right because he says he'll he'll go on these kind of walks for like four hours a day which by the way i mean that's a lot like that's a lot of time and he says like yeah he's like i need to go out for four hours a day and if i don't then like i just feel horrible yeah Um, but anyway so he says he does that every day but you're right he does uh as far as we know always wind up back at home Mm -hmm. which if he was kind of truly in this spirit like i don't know maybe he would you know, get on a ship that was like leaving port and like wind up in South America. Yeah. Um, and he does say there's a quote <clears throat> I, I really liked about this kind of um, adventurer's spirit. This that kind of captures this. He says, we should go forth on the shortest walk perchance in the spirit of undying adventure, never to return prepared to send back our embalmed hearts only as relics to our desolate kingdoms if you are ready to leave father and mother and brother and sister and wife and child and friends and never see them again, if you have paid your debts and made your will and settled all your affairs and are a free man, then you are ready for a walk. Yeah, that's like a real buildup. <laughs> yeah, right. So so that is the kind of uh, mindset, I think, in Thoreau's opinion, we should be in anytime we, we go out for a walk is to just maybe I guess somewhere in the back of our minds we'll know that okay Mm -hmm. I am gonna kind of come home in a couple of hours because I have a job and responsibilities but Mm -hmm. I am kind of going into the world as if I am untethered and I'm just kind of open to whatever experience or things that I come across yeah so I guess here is I don't mean to be all down on Thoreau right out of the gate. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, I, it's I right. generally, yeah. I do enjoy reading Thoreau a lot, but it makes me think about too, when he was writing Walden, right. Mm-hmm. Which is very celebrated for, um, this solitudinous life, you know, living, roughing it, you're participating in nature fully. And he was just like, wasn't he living on Emerson's farm or like one of his friends, farm like really close to everything like if i drove 30 minutes out of the city and i was you know somewhere and i was like "Ooh, look at me i'm i'm very much in the wild now but then like i run to kmart or whatever for the (laughs) the gas station you know right well yeah he was on emerson state i believe so he wasn't like in the the deep woods of montana Mm -hmm. like cut off from civilization but as far as I know, he, he wasn't kind of like cheating and like going into town every now and then. I think he kind of well, 
state we'll have to, stand on his own. We'll have to look that up because I totally thought he was, but I, I could be wrong. Oh, yeah. Um, but the thing that I think about is that in a sense, there's like this praise of this kind of virtue or way of living. Mm-hmm. Um, and Thoreau is considered like a transcendentalist. So he's really saying like, you really got to, um, you know, shove off out of society. You have to be your own person. But then he always kind of has a little safety net, you know, like he always comes home at the end of his walk or his like wooded estate really is just, you know, being on Emerson's thing. And yeah, I kind of wonder, I mean, obviously he, he wouldn't have been the writer that he was if he actually went and lived that way. I think he would like, um, what is the guy's name in Into the Wild who goes and does that? Um, yeah. Alexander Supertramp. Yeah. He just goes out. You know, he's, he seems to be very much in the spirit of this kind of walk, but he's, you know, goes 100%. That is true. That that maybe Emerson in his, his actual life maybe didn't always follow his own advice or... Or Thoreau. He, or, excuse, yeah. Th- I said Emerson. I meant Thoreau. Yeah, that he he maybe. Uh, yeah, that the the character from or the the historical guy from Into the Wild maybe mm-hmm. embodies this a little bit more. Was like a true, <clears throat> true vagabond, and yeah. uh, really did just kind of go wherever, you know, the world kind of took him, and kind of was yeah. a true leaf blowing in the wind. Um, but. I think nonetheless, I think what he's capturing here is like, it's a way of interacting with the world that is, at least for me, very different than how I typically interact with the world, which is, mm-hmm. I've kind of been thinking about this over the week since I read this. I think me and I think a lot of people also, we're kind of existing in this like kind of checklist mindset of like, I have these things that I need to get done or these goals that I'm trying to accomplish. So I'm kind of like going out and trying to do them, kind of trying to tick them off. And this kind of orientation is is kind of the opposite of that. This is kind of like going out without any agenda and just like being open to whatever happens to you. And I think what's interesting is like something like vacation, like you can see, it's very interesting how different people vacation because you have some people who, when they're on vacation, they go into this very open mindset. They're like, I just want to go to, you know, Rome and then just like walk around, kind of see where where Rome takes me. You know, if mm-hmm. I feel like I want to come over here and get some wine, then I'll do that. And then other people, when they vacation, it's very much just like, I have these 10 things that I want to do today and I'm going to like check them off one at a time and go ding, ding, ding. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, I think it's just like a different, yeah, it's an orientation. It's not really the distinction between like vacation and work day because Mm -hmm. like I said, you can still be on vacation and be and not have this kind of like walker adventurer mm-hmm. uh, orientation. Yeah. So let's, I actually, I'm curious about this. So do you feel like you're going to change anything about how you live based off of this um, idea that Thoreau talks about, um, which again is, sort of walking without an end goal in sight, like kind of there are all these structures that we use to frame both our physical lives when we're going about from place to place, right? But also, I think, as you kind of talk about um, our internal lives Mm. and the, the patterns of thought that we have or the way that we approach a day by saying, okay, I've got, you know, 10 things I need to do. Um, and he sort of says, don't do any of that. 
Like you really have to just be free, live in the present, go about. Um, so how, if you think that you would include some of that in your life, like how are you aiming at incorporating that? Sure. Well, so I, I, I know personally, I tend to be more of the kind of planner and like, you know, Mm -hmm. have goals and agendas, but some things that I've done in the past, um, there was a, uh, a kind of exercise in this book I read called the artist way. It's called artist dates. And like once a week you would just kind of like basically take yourself on a date. And, uh, so I did that, did this for years and every week I would like either plan out something to do. Like sometimes I'd be like, okay, I'm going to go to this museum mm-hmm. or sometimes I just wouldn't plan anything. I would just be like, okay, I'm just going to go to this subway stop and I'm just going to wander. And mm-hmm. I really liked that practice a lot and really got into some cool, like weird shit that I don't think I ever would have gotten into. Yeah. Like, visiting Scientology museums and like talking to all kinds of interesting people. Mm -hmm. And I haven't done it for a while. And actually after I read this, I did it on Saturday. Like I was Mm -hmm. in, I was in Manhattan and I just like put the book down just for like a couple of hours, just kind of wandered and just, yeah, didn't have any set destination or any goal in mind. Mm -hmm. Just kind of, you know, followed wherever my feet kind of took me. Yeah. And I'm ready for a walk now. Come on, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. So I, I, I think there are probably ways to incorporate it into your life in, you know, I think even something like a date, like mm-hmm. a good date can be that as well. If both people are on board that, you know, mm-hmm. you show up, you know, maybe you have like a meeting destination and then you show up and you're just like, let's just show up, meet up and then we just kind of do whatever we want to do. If we feel like getting some wine, we can go there. If we feel like Mm -hmm. wandering and hearing this jazz band that's playing, like we can do that. Um, But I think both people probably have to be on board. Uh, Yeah. Because if they're not, you can have some tension where person's just like, but I I need structure. Like, what are we, what are we doing? Wait, we don't have a plan. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I mean, I would imagine that one of the reasons why we tend to organize our time or our lives or our cities or whatever in the way that we do is partly out of security, right? Um, I mean, one is uh, efficiency. Yeah, I was going to say that too, efficiency. That's totally, totally part of it. But I think, you know, when when we're overly efficient, then I think that there's something lost there, which, you know, you'll... You know, it's the sort of like the difference between like a um, like a car that is manufactured by like the Model T or whatever versus mm. like a car that was handmade by some dude in a shop, right? Or like the difference between something off the rack or bespoke. Yeah. And even though you have more ultimately of the product, I, I think you end up missing something, um, especially if you are the one building it yourself. You know, if it's like, I'm going to get a cool bookshelf from Ikea versus I'm going to uh, try to build something for this space. Um, <clears throat> we we miss out when everything comes with the instruction manual and then you just follow, you know, one through one through ten um, and I think it's an experiment, experiential kind of missing out. I mean, obviously you save some time, but then maybe that only matters if you're, uh, if you're saving that time for something else, but I think usually we don't. Sure. Well, and just that productivity and creativity don't really come from the same place. So you know, I think the kind of like checklist mindset of like, I've got these things to get through and tick them off. Like that works really well if you're just like in the getting things done mode. Mm-hmm. But that's not really a good way to orient yourself to do creative work. 
And I think a lot of what Thoreau is touching on here is that um, because I think a lot of what he's talking about is kind of the difference between like order and chaos, or we could say instead of order and chaos, we could say like nature and civilization. He's kind of saying that like we need this wildness, this nature to kind of uh, replenish us. It's kind of the thing that that keeps everything else fresh. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think if you are just constantly in that, you know, checklist mindset of, you know, getting things done, ticking things off. Yeah, you're not you're not really you're not really living. You're kind of living as like a a cog in the machine, but you're not actually uh, engaging in the world and, you know, feeling alive, which, you know, Thoreau talks a lot about. And mm-hmm. in that, I think, is why he has, you know, such a such a hard on for for nature is <laughs> yeah. like, is this wild spirit that, you know, it's it's up for debate whether or not he's romanticizing mm-hmm. it or not. But he definitely spends a lot of time in here talking about like, you know, he says he's basically anything that is wild and kind of unkempt he prefers to the more like domesticated civilized version so he says like i will take a swamp over like a cultivated piece of land i will take uh somebody with uh olive skin over somebody with white skin and i think he's saying that in terms of like somebody whose skin has you know been has seen the sun has seen the elements so yeah, I don't know. Did you have any any ideas about that? About what color my skin, my skin turns when it sees skin? <laughs> no, no, no. Just just about kind of his thoughts around because because he talks in here a lot about a lot about nature and this wildness that uh, he he sees lacking in his current society. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm I'm just trying to think about how far off the deep end do I want to take this? I think I'm going to not go super crazy yet, but, um, well, we can be, we can be in the spirit of Thoreau and kind of go where the conversation leads us. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that I was thinking about a little bit during this essay, um, I was with, uh, some friends of mine and we were talking about, what are uh, sacred spaces to us? Like, where do we feel, if we have a place, what is that place? Um, And I would say, like a mix of spiritual people um, to non-spiritual. I don't think anyone was really overtly religious. Maybe there was like one person. Um, But nobody said church. Everyone's place was somewhere in nature. Mm. Um, you know, like somebody had some woods that they they went to. Um, one was a certain uh, ravine kind of close to where I live. And I think that that says something to me. I mean, I'm not sure. I don't know if I would have a complete definition about what a spiritual place is. But one thing that it must have is a sense of meaning that can't be easily organized into words or short descriptions. Mm. Um, As in, if you go out to the woods, or actually, let me go back. If I was supposed to describe my house to somebody... Um, I could say, okay, it's got all these walls. It has this bookcase. There's a little frame around the doors. I could describe it down the detail. And at the end of it, you would have a sense of what the kind of place is. Yeah. Or, you know, you could do that with like an Arby's for something even more, uh, mundane and less personal. But I think when you, there's a place that's spiritual, you could probably talk about, a certain woods and maybe describe, Oh, there's this tree here. There's this tree here. 
But when you're doing that, you're not actually getting at the meaning of the place itself. Like you're, and I think even the person who who's describing it knows like, you know, I'm telling you this and this and this about it, but, but really, um, I'm not actually doing the place justice, for example. Right. And there's I an, think there's an element that cannot be put into words maybe. Yeah. And I think that that, um, I think for a lot of people, nature is that kind of place. Um, especially because it is more or less inherently unorganized. I mean, certainly there's ways in which, um, you know, trees grow as compared to like the understory or whatever, or the little shrubs um, or the way that the wildlife interacts, but it is far more random than anything that most people are comfortable with. Um, Mm. I would be curious if people from, you know, thousands of years ago when civilization was much more primitive, if they would still feel that uh, the natural area is sort of sacred, you know, is it really that there's something inherent about nature or is it just the fact that it is totally distinct from what we experience on the day to day, you know, for most people who live in uh, urban areas, who always drive on the road, who walk on the sidewalks, um, that kind of thing. Right. I mean, I would tend to think that there is, that it's not, because you're kind of saying, is it just the fact that we're never in nature so that, mm-hmm. you know, when we finally do go there, it feels sacred? Yeah. I would I would tend to think, no, I would tend to think there is something. Uh, and I think Thoreau probably would agree with that because he, he says, he says, you know, what's kind of interesting is when he just kind of lets himself walk and lets himself wander, he's mm-hmm. always just drawn to nature. Like he, yeah. he's always just kind of like feels pulled, pulled to there. Like there's some, mm-hmm. some like magnetic force pulling him to nature. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I think he, he also at one point says, you know, that like birds have this kind of like instinct to migrate mm-hmm. and that humans might have that similar instinct for walking and walking mm-hmm. in the woods. And I think that makes sense uh, evolutionarily as well, because, you know, most of our evolution, we were uh, hunter gatherers and we were walking a lot. Mm-hmm. We we're walking a lot in nature. So his kind of, you know, spending four hours a day walking today sounds crazy today. It's just like, who the fuck has that much time? Like, how are you able to just walk in the woods for four hours? But like in the grand scheme of human evolution, I don't think that's crazy at all. I think that number is probably low in terms of like how many hours our ancestors probably spent walking. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there's, I mean, Personally, I find that there's something very pleasurable about it. I mean, I think when when the when I was growing up, uh, my family we'd go on walks all the time. This was like our after dinner entertainment, or like the way that we just like what we did, and we would walk. Um, you know, maybe it was just like a mile, and it would usually just be up and down the subdivision. I will say uh, Thoreau really celebrates kind of aimless wandering um just without any real direction unless you count like you know deer trails or something like that i think um i am not as comfortable just bushwhacking through you know everything and then hopefully i'll get back to you know where i started but um definitely a kind of aimless wandering is through the streets where I live is something that I came to reappreciate after the pandemic started because there was just mm. less things to do. I think I was walking like 20 miles a week last summer and just exploring the neighborhood, looking at things in a different way. And I think that there is something very true. One of the things that he talks about is when you're you're walking 
and you might be in roughly the same area as you were before, but you're just a couple steps over this time mm. and everything looks totally different, mm. which is completely true. Um, you know, one of the, I recently reread To Kill a Mockingbird and at the end of that, um, well, the whole story basically takes part place in the small town and a lot of it just along this one street. And the main character scout is looking at everything from her front porch's perspective. Usually when she references something, it's like this person across the street or mm-hmm. next door. At the end of the story, she, she goes down the street and she is um, on the porch of another character's uh, house, a porch that she hadn't been to yet. And suddenly she notices that even though it's the same street, everything is completely different. Um, and I think in this in this story, to go on a slight tangent, it's about uh, growing up and how you see some things as a child, but through the events of the story, she grows up. Now she's over here in this literal other place. Mm. But there is a kind of maybe not large scale growing up that goes on when we take walks and we see something in a new light, but it does add another dimension of appreciation and understanding what a thing is like what this house looks like or what this tree um, is. And I think that makes it infinitely richer. Um, So taking walks is great. Thank you COVID for reminding me of that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, it kind of gave us a, a, chance to um kind of pause and smell the roses as it were mm-hmm. and yeah i mean I, I like that there was that passage in here where he says that basically you can take the same walk in like a 10 mile radius your whole life mm-hmm. and if you're in this you know mindset the the appropriate walker mindset mm-hmm. you're gonna see something different every time and i think yeah he doesn't really say why, but to I would intuit that the the things that change are yeah you might your your path is never going to be exactly the same. Plus, you are never going to be the exact same person. You know, yeah. It's kind of like uh, when you reread a great book a mm-hmm. couple of years later, you it's a completely different experience. You know, the text is the same, but you've changed so much. So passages that didn't really strike you the first time around like really strike you now and yeah i think it's the same type of thing when you're you're walking a similar path um i totally thought you were gonna go with the you can't step in the same river twice kind of metaphor oh yeah no that, that is the the, the uh, a good metaphor for it that would have been the low-hanging fruit yeah. of of the analogies to use there nice I'm glad we we included it then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I was going to ask you, so he says, he, he spends a decent mi- amount of time talking about this pull into nature, but he also talks a decent amount about this westward pull and mm-hmm. that like, you know, if you're, if we're just kind of, if we just kind of wander, we end up wandering westward. Mm-hmm. Um, And I don't know, I have some thoughts about it. He, so he he kind of says like, you know, when you look at the history of, uh, you know, America and how Columbus was drawn west mm-hmm. over the Atlantic. And then after that, the, uh, you know, the settlers were then drawn further and further west until they reached the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And he seems to think that there's some inherent westward pull in that uh, Maybe part of it is the sun sets in the west, so it's almost like we're chasing the setting sun. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the romantic in me really likes that idea, but mm-hmm. I think the skeptic in me is skeptical of that because yeah. I think the first people to migrate, uh, at least the current hypothesis, the out-of-Africa sure. hypothesis uh, they all went east. So it was, mm-hmm. you know, the, the first Homo sapiens leaving Africa migrated up north and then went through present day Russia mm-hmm. over the, um, what is it, the yeah. Bering Strait into uh, that, that land bridge into mm-hmm. modern day Alaska and then down into the Americas. So that was all eastern 
And yeah. So I, I almost am skeptical that maybe this kind of like westward pole that he is referring to is just has to do with the geography of the world in that like mm-hmm. there was this big ass Atlantic Ocean keeping people from going west until they had the tools and ships to to mm-hmm. do it. And that that is kind of this what this westward pole is. But I don't know. What did you think about his westward pole? Oh, yeah. I think it's ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> Well, for a couple of things. I mean, first of all, when he's saying he personally is always drawn west, I think that is probably true. I find um, I'm always drawn north. I was going to say, but could that just be he's drawn west because the woods happen to be west of where he lives? Yeah, maybe. Um, I, I mean, the way that my neighborhood is situated, I'm at the very south end. And I tend to want to walk up through the greenery and everything like that rather than down towards like more urban and urban areas. Also going through um, college campus housing, Mm. you know, that's not as appealing to me. So, yeah, maybe it is just this nature thing is over here or for me, it's north. Um, But, yeah, I don't I don't see any particular reason why humans always go west. Um, I think that was probably just a product of thinking of his time um, and just like the story that they told about the course of human history. But Right. Well, and in their kind of current, in in their way of thinking about things, the west did have an association with the new because it was mm-hmm. like, America is this like wild, like quote, uncharted territory. I mean, obviously, but had people, but it was, and then, you know, the wild West was seen as this uncharted land. So I think there was this, he probably was biased that there was this natural association in his day with just like the West being Mm -hmm. new. Cause he talks about how going West is into the future and then Mm -hmm. going East is a return to the past, which I guess would just be a return to Europe and all of its culture and in history. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was interesting reading some of those passages in Thoreau because there was definitely a kind of mix of like manifest destiny and, you know, colonialism stuff. And then he, he says, um, you know, when I say we're going West, I really mean going to the wild, which I do think is true, but I, yeah, I think um, uh, he is we'll say has yeah, I don't know. I think that there's a, a bit of jingoism going on as well. Yeah, he might be uh, romanticizing it a little bit. Cool. Um, so this part. I I also wanted to maybe touch on he talks about he talks about how in a lot of Western literature really oh, quick, yeah. can I hop oh, yeah. on something? Oh yeah. He says to Americans I hardly need to say westward the star of empire takes its way. So I don't know. I'm I'm happy to read authors and say, okay, like I'll follow you this far, this other stuff, you know, it's right. It's it, not important for me to be a hundred percent on board with everything that I read from every person. Totally. Yeah. It's an interesting but. idea, but maybe doesn't, uh, doesn't quite hold up. Um, but yeah, I was curious what you thought about his analysis of like Western literature. Cause he seems to, he seems to think that a lot of poets and Western literature, even including like uh, Shakespeare, mm-hmm. is lacking this kind of primal sense of nature. And yeah. he sees mythology as being like the really like the closest thing to it. And mm-hmm. maybe and I can maybe read this quote. He says, uh, I demand something which no Augustan nor Elizabethan age, which no culture in short can give mythology comes nearer to it than anything. 
how much more fertile a nature, at least, has Grecian mythology its root in than English literature? Mythology is the crop which the old world bore before its soil was exhausted, before the fancy and imagination were affected with blight, in which it still bears, whether its pristine vigor is unabated. All other literatures endure only as the elms which overshadow our houses, but this is like the great dragon tree of the Western Isles. Yeah. Yeah. So I think Thoreau is right. Um, and I think that there are a couple ways in, in which I agree with his, his analysis. One, yeah, mythology is more primal than I would say probably all literature that we read. And I think the reason for that is because in part, A, we, we write what we know. And so as um, society becomes, as it develops, like there is just like, um, especially if you compare uh, once industrialization occurs, the, the world which more and more people start to operate in is more structured. Mm. Myths I don't think there's some structure to them, but it's not, they're, they're considerably shorter usually. And there's also, I think a bit of randomness, a bit of like trying to make sense of natural things going on, which isn't often the case with like society novels or Jane Austen or Stephen King or um, Dostoevsky so part of it is, I think, people who were communicating, not necessarily even writing back then, because a lot yeah. of these myths come, you know, before. Um, but yeah, the, the kind of world that they were connected to was more uh, infused with nature. And yeah. it wasn't as um, structured, private property, parceled out. But I think the other reason... Um, is because writing itself is a structured act. And so when you're writing a book or you're creating a plot, to make, like to thread meaning through like an entire story, which is like saying there's all these events going on and we have to like find a through line that connects them in a way that makes sense, that I think is a very human enterprise and that is not what nature is about. I don't think nature is trying to create a singular story or something. You know, when you walk into the woods, there's a feeling there, but there's not a narrative thread. And I think when we're writing fiction or essays or whatever, we've already taken the whole of the experience and put it through a kind of like squeezing tube so that everything kind of comes out through this central uh, focal point of um, like a singular story or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think about it. I think about it similarly. I think about it in terms of like kind of rationality and irrationality or um, something that came up for me was uh, – the way Nietzsche, because Nietzsche kind of talks about the same thing, because Nietzsche kind of critiques a lot of Western literature, and he says basically the the Greeks and Socrates like ruined it, like because mm. there tended to be this overemphasis on rationality that kind of came with Socrates and some of the Greeks, where and that that would be the way he categorizes it is a. Uh, Apollonian and Dionysian. Sure. And Apollo is, you know, kind of represents rationality and order and structure and Dionysus Dionysus represents chaos and passion and I guess in this case nature. So he sees the west as, you know, kind of starting with the Greeks in his his view, we kind of de-emphasize the irrational and emphasized the rational mm -hmm. to to the point where 
yeah, he sees he sees it being a problem because, you know, we kind of, in his view, need to have both of those things. And yeah, when you take out the, the ir- irrational and take out the wild, maybe you get a certain kind of staleness, which is, is kind of similar to maybe what Thoreau is trying to get at here. And that he says, mm-hmm. I, I don't have the quote on hand, but he says something like, um, you know, anytime there is something like exciting, basically, that is the wild. Mm-hmm. And I think that the wild is, yeah, if we were wanted to use Nietzsche's terms, we could say Dionysian, that that's that kind of irrational wild side that is maybe missing a little bit now from Western culture because we tend to value rationality and science and all of these things so much more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that could be why why he sees mythology as being so rich because a lot of mythology it is irrational right you mean yeah. you have you have people swallowing planets and like you have a lot of things that doesn't make any sense to the rational brain but, mm-hmm. but maybe speaks to our irrational nature and yeah. Yeah, so it is an interesting thing. He, I mean, I also like how he conceptualizes it in terms of seeing he, you know, Thoreau's really great at painting these like metaphors in his mm-hmm. ideas. So I liked kind of thinking about mythology as this big, uh, what kind of tree does he dragon tree? Mm-hmm. You know, one of these huge trees that is, uh, you know, bear has bore all of this fruit. Mm-hmm. And he also says he he kind of ponders whether or not art like the current American mythology will like spring all of this art in the future. Yeah, I mean, I don't think America. Well, I don't know. That's like a question that I you could like spin out some kind of response you know, but who, who can really say? Um, but I think it's interesting because, well, to talk about the literature a little bit more, Yeah. when we find a story satisfying, like we don't find when a four-year-old tells you a story about their day, most of us don't find that intrinsically satisfying because <laughs> There's no resolution, like this thing that happens earlier doesn't circle back, you know, the the random event that you're like, this is this is just made up. This doesn't make any sense. Mm. Um, And I think that that is more in tune with how we interact with nature, because if you think about a child's perspective, right, they're in a world for the first time. They're trying to make sense of everything that's going on around them. They haven't quite figured out, you know, this is the key that, you know, unlocks and orders everything. And I think when we're in the natural world, uh, we're in a somewhat similar state. Things don't seem to make sense as much um, because, you know, our minds play tricks on us much more easily than if we're just, you know, at a Starbucks or something. Because there's no pattern to how we should process that experience that we, unless you go out to the same thing every single time and you know what you're going to expect, then it becomes like a very uh, familiar area. But I think the unfamiliarity of nature, both when you go to a new place, but also it's um, intrinsic disorder makes the experience Uh, more chaotic and perhaps myth comes out of that background of being in a society where you still haven't unlocked everything you know there's still a lot of unknowns going on Mm. why is there thunder or lightning and we're actually um, we succumb to the forces of nature much more frequently and so I think that that's where some of the power of myth comes from is this trying to wrestle with the unknown and being unable to process it. So you you kind of come up with a story that ultimately sort of answers it, but kind of leaves it open as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this might be 
kind of a clunky transition, but (laughs) 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 well, one of the things you're talking about was kind of like the known and the unknown. All right. So this Mm -hmm. is a a clunky transition, but I don't, I don't care. I'm going with it anyways, because I really wanted to get to this idea. It's your podcast. Right. And uh, Thoreau would probably be disappointed that I'm, I'm forcing an agenda here, Mm. but, um, I tried to make it happen naturally. It doesn't always work. But one of the <laughs> one of the ideas I I loved was he talks a bit about education here and how kind of we educate children and he says he talks about ignorance and he I want to read this quote here. He says a man's ignorance sometimes is not only useful but beautiful while his knowledge so-called, is oftentimes worse than useless, besides being ugly. And then he says, which is the best man to deal with? He who knows nothing about a subject and what is extremely rare knows that he knows nothing, or he who really knows something about it but thinks that he knows all. Mm -hmm. So he seems to be talking here about, uh, you know, there's this, problem that a lot of people have which is we think we already know it we think we already know everything and that prevents us from actually learning or actually seeing things as as they are and that you know as he says ignorance is sometimes not only useful but beautiful because if you're ignorant and you know that you're ignorant you're at least you're at least your your vision is not clouded by the the idea that you already know the answers Mm mm-hmm and I don't know, I kind of attach this idea to like beginner's mind, which is a big, a big idea in like Zen Buddhism mm-hmm. and that, you know, there's the quote that like the, in the beginner's mind, there are several possibilities, but in the expert's mind, there's only one. Mm-hmm. And that like, if we already think that we know everything, that is just going to hinder us from learning anymore or from seeing things the way that they actually are. Uh, So I really, I really loved how he, how he put this. Um, But yeah, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on this, this idea? Yeah. Well, I don't want to claim to really know my thoughts about this. (laughs) Um, I think that this is very similar to my own feelings about epistemology. Um, I don't think that we really know much of anything. Um, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical about the, um, unlimited, uh, direction or power of human knowledge. I think that when we, generally speaking, when we approach the world, we're really like a lump of flesh with a brain and it has like these five inputs um, and then it's got the brain to process through it. And it just seems unlikely that we're going to actually understand all that there is to know about the world through only five means. I mean, actually we have more than five senses, but whatever it, the number is not important. Yeah. Um, There's just likely a lot of things going on that we're not privy to. And so for me, I am generally skeptical about certainty and knowledge. And if we look through history, of course, we can see, oh, like these people, I can't believe they really thought that. That makes no sense. But we we really know what's going on. Right. Like kind of what we're doing with uh, Thoreau's hypothesis about the westward pole. It's a Mm -hmm. similar kind of thing. Yeah. So, um I think the jury is out on whether or not human knowledge is actually as sensible as it seems to be. But I think the more important thing, well, in some sense, it doesn't matter because um, from like a pragmatist point of view, like what is true is what works. And so if you know, like, it doesn't matter if you know how your car works exactly, so long as 
you understand, okay, I got to turn the key. I got to like move this into drive. Then I'm off on the road. I think most of our knowledge uh, will not have an impact. Like it's not going to change radically um, and have a huge impact on many of the things that we do socially or day to day. But I think that the, the way that we position ourselves in regard to others or in regard to the world of knowing that you probably don't know what's right or what's true, I think that that is actually much more important as an internal compass than is the opposite of being confident about that you know particularly this kind of thing. So I think, yeah, ultimately the import is about us and how we then go about living rather than, you know, whether or not we actually have, you know, 95% of our knowledge is right or wrong or whatever. Right. Yeah. And I agree. I think what he's talking about here is not so much whether or not we can attain knowledge or whether or not there is objective truth. It's kind of, again, like an orientation, like the orientation Mm -hmm. is, yeah, maybe I know some things, maybe I don't, but I'm going to kind of go into the world with an empty vessel Mm -hmm. and, you know, have this beginner's mind so that I don't show up already thinking that I know all the answers and I, you know, can't nobody tell me nothing, Kanye West. Um, you know, I think that's kind of what he's getting at, which I love. And I think, uh, it reminded me of, there's a great book called how to read a book by Mortimer Mm -hmm. Adler. And he says something like the, science teacher likes when his students have prior knowledge about science, but the philosophy teacher hates when his students have Mm. prior knowledge about philosophy. And I think he's getting to that same thing because if you have a philosophy student, at least in his estimation, like, you know, you start maybe talking about ideas or or philosophies and they, they already know everything. It's like, you you can't, you know, I, I already know it all. Uh, yeah. and you know, can't tell me nothing. So religion students too. I yeah. Feel like that's, that's I, even would, worse. I would imagine. Yeah. Whereas it is interesting. Cause at least in that estimation, he says like for science, it, it's actually a good thing because with the science student, you know, you can start, uh, you can kind of build on their previous, <clears throat> their previous knowledge. Whereas he says with philosophy students, it can, it can get in the way, but well, I mean, Yeah, I mean, it sort of is about what the goal in the classroom is, right? Because ultimately, that's probably not a good way to think about science either, I imagine. If you're already, I mean, the whole point of a hypothesis is the uncertainty. And then when you prove something in science, you are supposed to know that it is right until it is proven wrong. And so there's this uh, what is the word for humility? Um, uh, humble stance that a scientist ought to take. Um, that's kind of like built into the approach. But I think a lot of times that ends up not happening, right? You know, and this is, uh, for some reason, I think that this is what happened to the guy who thought about Teutonic plates. And he had like all this research and everyone was like, no, this is totally ridiculous. Um, because people were kind of convinced that what had come before was actually true. Totally. Well, and there's a phenomenon, I think it's called Einstellung, which is kind of what this is all about. And this is the the kind of phenomenon where a lot of breakthroughs in different fields, they come from somebody who is not in the field. Mm-hmm. And the thinking is that the people that are already in the field they can only see it one way just because yeah. they're so kind of indoctrinated in it. And they, the person who's outside of the field doesn't have that uh, lens to see everything. And they're kind of going into it with fresh eyes. And they're just like, mm-hmm. oh, have you guys ever thought about doing it this way? Yeah. And, you know, they, they are able to kind of come in with that beginner's mind and just like revolutionize like an entire field or industry. Yeah. And I wonder, what, so one thing that, Thoreau talks about a little bit 
uh, is when he's talking about how he decides where to walk. Mm-hmm. And he says that he feels like there's this internal compass pull and that sometimes he actually has to stand there for like 20 or 30 minutes or something, just like going back and forth, like, which way do I really want to go inside? And then fine, I'll just like yeah. go this way, whatever. I guess we'll do the same thing, you know, damn it. Um, and I think that that's interesting because I think the practice of having an open mind is somewhat similar. Like mm-hmm. there really is a lot of wrestling daily in that, you know, and this is not coming from a person who has a, you know, universally open mind. I certainly don't wrestle with myself back and forth all the time about um, every single thing that I have a conviction over. But I think ultimately in the way that he describes that there's a pull, um, a sort of magnetism yeah. for him personally, there likely is a kind of intuition that we all have about quite a number of things, but mm. we often bury it by habit. Totally. Well, and I was thinking about, so the pole can be something at the micro level where it's like, <clears throat> am I feeling pulled to walk this way on my walk or that way on my walk? But mm-hmm. the pole can also be happening on a, mic- a macro level where it's like, am I being pulled towards this career or this career? Mm-hmm. And I know that's something that Emerson talks a lot about and Thoreau was, you know, influenced by him a lot. That kind of like really, really dialing in and listening to your inner compass. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it is interesting that it can be used on the kind of micro level when it's, when it's just like, which way do I want to go on my, my walk? Yeah. Um, Cause yeah, I think usually when we talk, think about like listening to our intuition, at least for me personally, I think my bias is to think about it on like macro global things of like, mm-hmm. is my heart telling me to like marry this person? Is my heart, te- or is my heart telling me to like choose this career path? But it could just be, you know, is, you know, am I thinking about going left at the bend or right on the bend? <laughs> yeah, I'm totally micro. I like don't care about these big things. I'm like, yeah, go away. I don't I don't want to hear about what my internal voice has to say, but if I'm like opening a pack of gum, I really take <laughs> a second to think, okay, which piece am I really being drawn to here? Wow. It's always on the right. This is true. This is totally true. It's always like the rightmost piece. Wow. So you have an an eastward pull then. <laughs> well, it depends on which way I'm facing, I yeah, guess. Yeah, I guess it's true. That's funny. Well, I think what's so cool about this piece or what, at least what I really liked about it is there are a lot of meta things happening. Cause like walking mm-hmm. is this metaphor for life mm-hmm. and you know, the orientation that somebody can take in a 15 minute walk is the same orientation that somebody can take with their life where it's just mm-hmm. like a different approach to living. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the same thing where it's like the the same kind of deliberateness you can have with kind of listening to your inner voice when it comes to, you know, the macro, it can also transition to the micro and, and vice versa. Yeah, I think um, one thing that really interested me was, um, sorry, did, I no. totally didn't mean to. No, I was, I was, I was done. Okay. <laughs> I didn't have any, cool. any more. Please. Um, so one of the last things that he talks about is our um, obeying the law. Mm. And he doesn't really mean, you know, legally. Well, he does mean that, but that's not the, the main pull of it. Um, <clears throat> he says, and this is actually right after what you were talking about with the knowledge thing. Mm-hmm. There's something servile in the habit of seeking after a law which we may obey. We may study the laws of matter at and for our convenience, but a successful life knows no law. It is an unfortunate discovery, certainly, that of a law which binds us where we did not know before that we were bound. Live free, child of the mist, and with respect to knowledge, we are all children of the mist. The man who takes the liberty to live is superior to all the laws by virtue of his relation to the lawmaker. 
And I think that, I mean, this is maybe like the thrust of a lot of what he's saying in the essay. Like if I was going to boil it down, I think it is kind of about this. And I think walking is a metaphor, kind of what you were saying about how we live in relationship to the law of society or the law of habit or the law of uh, the voices that are around us telling us that this is, you know, how you should approach, approach life. Mm -hmm. And he says, get away from all that. Go into the bog, go into the swamp, walk around a bit, get lost, see things from a new way. Eventually, maybe come back home, but then go out again, you Mm -hmm. know. Um, And I think that that's true because we can find ways of doing that in every area of our life um, where we have this, we think that there's a certain way things should go. And then eventually through experience or just age or intentionally undoing those assumptions, we realize, oh, this isn't really what it's like at all. Thanks for listening to Unpacking Ideas. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or scroll down and write a review or give us a five-star rating. All that helps tremendously, so thanks so much in advance. If you'd like to read along with us, please visit unpackingideas.com, where I post links to the future pieces that we'll be discussing on future podcast episodes. And finally, if this conversation inspired you to want to get out in nature and go for a walk or go for a hike, definitely check out Stephen's free backpacking resource called backpackmap.com. And there you can find information about where different trails are located across the country, as well as all of the logistical information that you need in order to plan your next hike. So definitely check that out. And that is it. I will see you guys next episode.